sir. Prisoner! Franco, VR. Death by hanging. Vladek, M. 30 years hard labor. That was the opening music to The Dirty Dozen. Released in 1968. 67. Ah, 1967. June 15th, 1967. I was there for opening night. Did you you go to the midnight showing, or did they not have midnight showings back then? I don't think they were doing midnight showings, but I'll tell you, the theater in Boulder was packed. (laughs) There was so much testosterone in that room. (laughs) You know, because everybody was anticipating this this big war movie, and they got their money's worth, let me tell you. This was a huge hit, right? This made a lot of money. Oh, it really did. Metro-Golden-Mayer uh, was the distributor, and they, the budget for the movie was $5.4 million, and the box office was $45.3 million, and counting. I mean, I think it's still, it has a lot of residuals, I'm sure, today. I'll bet it's, I'll bet in terms of today's dollars, I bet it's over $100 million. Well, it's a uh, it spawned a, a made-for-TV sequel and also a TV series. And I, I read a rumor that there there there's some work being done to have a remake of it, which I think would be pretty great. I think it, I think it'd make a good movie today. It stands up pretty well overall. Yeah, it does because it takes place in the past. So, I mean, it's not going to age. It wasn't like current events. And and they could do some terrific things with special effects. Did did you? Oh, well, let's see. I was going to mention that the director uh, Robert Aldrich was really good at making these kind of action movies. He was very successful at that. And our favorite writer was the screenwriter for this. After two other writers didn't get the uh, screenplay the way Robert Aldrich wanted it, and that favorite screenwriter of ours would be Nunley Johnson. That's right. <laughs> no relation yes. that we're aware of, although who knows? <laughs> who knows? Although it is a rather common name. So yeah, we wanted to start the podcast off with just some background on on him. And we actually have a book, which I'll put a link to in the show notes uh, to Amazon. But it's called The Letters of Nunley Johnson. And they've been selected and edited by Doris Johnson which was, his, uh, she was his wife, and Ellen Laventhal. I'm not sure what the relationship there was. But here on page 230, well, first, here's here's a little bit of background on him before we read part of this letter. Uh, Nunley Johnson is one of the most respected and admired screenwriters in the American film industry because of his skill and craftsmanship in an area that is not noted for either. 
He has consistently written good scripts for over 30 years and been involved with some of the most successful, both artistically and financially, films to have come out of the American film industry. Curiously enough, Johnson has never won the highest honor of the industry, the Academy Award, which puts him in the same category with such other losers, quote-unquote, as Cary Grant, Greta Garbo, D.W. Griffith, and Charles Chaplin. So that's a quote from a website that I'll link to. He's in pretty good company with that group of people. And here's something that he said about this movie. Uh, Interestingly enough, he never saw this movie. He wrote the script for it, but never actually saw the finished product. Uh, he, he didn't feel very warm and fuzzy toward Robert Aldrich. <laughs> I do know that much. Because uh, he brought in another writer, uh, Lucas Heller, to kind of finish it up. And this is a little bit about uh, his writing style. So this is an interview... Uh, that was done and uh, this is the question why do you think over the years that you've been so consistently successful as a writer and his response is well it's like a batting average a fellow hits over 300 over over the years that doesn't mean he gets a hit every time he comes to bat it means he gets a hit only once out of three times I think it's mainly because I'm a reliable pro I'm not liable to give them a masterpiece and they don't look for it. But they're pretty sure they won't have to say, uh-oh, we'll have to get somebody else and the money's wasted. Uh, so then he, then he goes on to say, this is about the Dirty Dozen. I go on picture after picture where, like with the Dirty Dozen, there were already three scripts which they had found unsatisfactory for one reason or another. I never read them and I don't even know who wrote them, but mine clicked with them. I didn't know that he'd never seen the movie. Yeah. So then he goes on to say, I think that's the main reason. I'm regular. I won't come up with a home run, but I'll get on base or something like that. Nobody's ever followed me on a script. I can't think of any. Maybe way back, unless it's a case like Aldrich, who you might say has his house writer, and he uses him to change things and do Aldrich's own stuff. So up until this point, and this was, uh, I think, his last film uh, that he that he wrote the script for yeah it was near the end of his life I, that may be uh one of the reasons he never saw the movie because i believe he was ill yeah so up until this point nobody ever followed him as a scriptwriter, and he wrote the script for the grapes of wrath and here's a little interesting tidbit about that movie do you remember that scene in the movie where they go into the the deli at the gas station and they're they're just so hungry and they're looking for some food and the uh truckers yeah the truckers give give some some candy they buy some candy for the the kids yeah do you remember that scene oh i do very well yeah these two truckers went out of their way to help them in the original book they there is that scene but it's not specifically about the jodes it's just kind of a an aside about uh, how people were helping each other back then, and Nunley wrote rewrote it so that it was all about the Jodes, and uh, he that's the kind of thing that he did as a screenwriter. He was able to take pre-existing work from novels or maybe other uh, work that had been done on the stage, and then adapt it in a way that just really worked for the screen. He was truly a professional, I tell you. 
So, so here's here's the last thing I want to read about him. Um, this is from the book, uh, page two thirty. He's writing to Robert Parrish on April 9th, nineteen sixty nine, uh, and this is the second paragraph in this letter. He says, "I'm working on another World War II script, and I'm trying to make it very au courant. But let me tell you, it isn't easy to get a naked woman in a World War II battle. The homosexuality is no problem. I'm just bunking the first platoon in with the second. This project will probably join the Frontiersmen and Scuba Duba on the shelf. <laughs> He's such a funny guy. I mean, that's the thing. If you read those oh, letters, it it's just one funny thing that he says after another. and It's totally on purpose. I mean, I'm sure that he wasn't trying to write a World War II script that had naked a naked woman in it or homosexuality. Oh, no. But, you know, that's just his sense of humor. Every one of those letters has a has a twist to it that makes it delightful to read. I, I did want to interject that we should probably give our uh, address information for our podcast. You think now that we're 10 minutes into the show? <laughs> we just jumped right in. And <laughs> let me just say that uh, you can hear us uh, get our podcast on iTunes by looking for classic movie reviews on iTunes, and they're free. And we also have our own web address, Matt, which I'll throw over to you. Yeah, so you can find us on the internet. Uh, just go to www.classicmoviereviews.net and it works great on uh, your mobile phone or on an iPad or an Android tablet or just in your regular browser on your computer. And you can, of course, subscribe to us through iTunes, as Bob said. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews and look for our logo and... Uh, our photo is also there. So, uh, yeah, we should introduce ourselves. And uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from the Seattle area today. And I'm Bob Johnson. I've returned to Los Angeles, and uh, this is our 32nd podcast, I think. No, we're, my... we're, we're beyond that. We're, I think this is our 35th. Oh, we're rolling right along. This movie is so straightforward, it's fun to watch because... He collects all these people, he trains them, and off they go. I mean, if the, there's no, there's no uh, fooling around. It's just straight-ahead action from the beginning to the end. And boy, I tell you, the, the cast of characters that are in this movie are amazingly evil when they start out, and then they become heroes as they go along. Or most of them, most of them do, and not all. But. We should introduce the cast here. Lee Marvin plays Major Reisman, and he's the one in charge of uh, getting these twelve convicted murderers to form a a, a unit because they're going to be tasked with pretty much an impossible mission. Uh, so no, none of them are expected to come back from this mission. But their alternative, the, the alternative for them is to either be hung or have a life uh, sentence in a military prison. So they don't have much of a choice. And boy, what a cast. It's got Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, John Cassavetes, Richard Jekyll, George Kennedy, Ralph Meeker, Robert Ryan, who plays really... <laughs> and, and a bad colonel, or, or at least very Inept. rigid. <laughs> Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, Clint Walker, who looks like he's about seven feet three and 
300 pounds of sculpted sculpted muscle. Oh my god, he's huge. He's huge. When I I saw him the first time, I'm like, he's like a forerunner to Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. But much taller. Yeah. And then there's a whole host of probably another dozen people that I don't even mention here. And the thing that I found interesting, too, in, in reading about this... This story is patterned a little bit like uh, and was and was inspired by the real life work of a group called the Filthy 13 which in night in the during World War II was a group of uh these kind of uh, special forces people that were doing all kinds of missions they weren't people from prison or had that kind of background but they did a lot of undercover covert work the Filthy 13. The, another fun fact is that in 2001, the American Film Institute, our favorite uh, awards group, placed this film as number 65 on their 100 years and 100 thrills list. I've got to look up how many lists <laughs> the American Film Institute has. they got a list for everything. Not only do they have a list for everything, but the, the names of their lists are, are great. <laughs> <laughs> so... 100 years, 100 thrills. I love it. <laughs> I wonder I wonder what the first 64 were. Anyway, we'll never, well, I have to look that up. We don't know that tonight. But anyway. Well, well one other thing about Clint Walker before we go on. He, he's, he was a huge star on TV. He, he, was, oh, uh, he was in the TV show Cheyenne, which apparently kind of kicked off or was the, the first of the TV westerns, you know, kind of like. That show, I remember seeing, I think it first came out in 1955 or 56, and it was the forerunner. And then within just a short time, there were two dozen cowboy shows, western shows on television. There, I mean, it seemed like every night you could watch three different westerns. It's kind of like uh, crime scene shows these days. Yes, it, it really <laughs> is. Everything from Have Gun, Will Travel to uh, Bonanza to Maverick, which was my favorite. But yeah. Clint Walker was was the original, really, and he's he's mammoth. Yeah. His, so should we jump into some of our favorite scenes? So we kind of set up the plot here, and I think yes. uh, it's pretty straightforward. Not a lot of uh, complexity going on. Uh, one thing I I thought the music was great. It's really classic music. It's kind of been imitated quite a bit since then. I think. Oh, it's it's it fits the it fits the movie perfectly. Oh, one more thing before we jump in. Sorry. The the credits don't roll until 10 minutes into the movie. Did you notice that? I did, and in 1967, that was a big deal because it was so new. Nowadays, they they, they come up maybe 10 minutes in oftentimes. But... I, it was so unexpected because in, in the 34 episodes that we've done, that this is the first time that that's occurred, and I, I thought that I missed it, and I kept waiting, and I thought, should I rewind it? I missed the credits. And then finally, like 10 minutes in, they start to roll. It, it really is a, a, a film that looks into the future in terms of how movies were going to be made. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I, I had part one as uh, Lee Marvin's identification and recruitment of the prisoners. And I mean, these people, they were in for uh, murder. Uh, their sentences were death, death, 30 years of imprisonment. One was a psychopath. Telly Savalas, he was the, he was, I don't know how they ever selected him, man, that guy was, he was crazy. Uh, so he, he interviewed them all, if you can call it an interview, and then he gets them out in the courtyard and lines them up for their drill. 
<laughs> he has to he has to put the works on uh, John Cassavetes' character because Franco wants none of this. So the, he gets it all he gets them all lined up and and uh, sorts them out, and they're really unruly. Yeah, I thought the point of that scene in the courtyard was twofold. One was to kind of show uh, Major Reisman as being a badass because he he was able to take these guys. And the second thing was that, for the most part, these prisoners are redeemable. You know, like, I think except for maybe Maggot, who was uh, the crazy one, that they'd all sort of been put into a position where they had to do some bad things, and, you know, then they ended up being put in prison. And the very first scene of the movie sets this up and kind of foreshadows it, because the kid that gets hung in the first scene of the movie kept saying i didn't mean to do it i didn't mean to do it you know i'm sorry i'm sorry and and yet he gets hung anyway and so i think that kind of sets it up you know that yeah these guys are bad guys but they're redeemable and uh major reisman the lee marvin character was asked by the general uh ernest borgnine what he thought of the hanging and and reisman's immediate response was well major what did you think of the hanging Look very efficient. Then again, I'm not an expert. I meant, uh, how did you personally feel about it? It wasn't the nicest way to spend an evening. Yes. Well, it wasn't stage free entertainment. You know, I hope the private gardener was aware of that. Private who? Private gardener. He was the object of the exercise. I mean, he's, he had a belly full of that. The other thing I liked about these, this crew of uh, misfits is one of them, I think it was Charles Bronson's character, had shot one of his own officers who was retreating. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He, he, he shot him because he was running away with all the medical supplies. He was, he was, he was deserting the unit. And uh, Major Reisman's only comment was, "You got caught." <laughs> you know? right. It wasn't that you'd done the wrong thing. It was just that you got caught. I think of all the movies I've seen in my life, this group of of people are the most unlikable at the beginning of any I've ever watched. And then to watch them all kind of transform into this uh, cohesive fighting unit, except for Maggot, is, a, is, is a, just a fun movie to watch. I wanted it to go on even longer. They all, they, they, and they made a point of making these guys f- have failings beyond just the fact that they were in prison. Like, for instance, uh, when... Major Reisman comes in to talk to Franco after he kind of beat him up. They show that he has a wooden leg. His left leg is is a wooden leg. And uh, that makes his performance throughout the movie even more impressive because that's a lot to do given the fact that the technology for prosthetics back then was not, not great. Pretty primitive. I just noticed that the running time on this movie was almost three hours. It was two and a, it was 150 minutes, so it's two and a half hours roughly. And I never got ti- never get tired of it. I didn't get bored either. I, I got we can talk about it when we get there. I got a little bit anxious in the last section when they're it's the attack on the chateau, but we, I don't want to jump ahead too far. Part one was that recruitment process. Part two then is the whole training. They all go out into the rainy countryside of England with all this, these supplies. They go out into the rainy 
countryside of England, and they just dump them off, dump the supplies off, and there they are. And they're all, all these 12 dirty dozen guys are complaining about the rain, it's cold, and they have to build all of their own uh, place, and then they start to train. And Donald Sutherland was totally inept. When he was pounding that nail, I thought, he's never going to get that nail in. It took him like five minutes to pound that nail in. <laughs> I thought the antics at the camp were funny. And uh, one of my favorite scenes was when they were, they finally got the camp built. And so now they can do their training. And Jimenez was one of the, you know, one of the guys. And he was climbing the rope, but he was oh, yes, yes, kind of stuck at the top. And he kept complaining about how he can't finish. He can't do it. He can't finish. Come on, Jimenez, move it. When the time comes, you've got exactly 34 seconds to clear that distance. I really can't make it, Major. Now, come on, Jimenez, move it. Don't stop now. I can't. I can't. Come on, Jimenez, move. I really can't. I can't make it, Major. I can't make it. I can't make it. Jimenez, you come back down that rope, you're going straight back to prison. I can't. I can't. Really, I can't. Sergeant, give me that weapon. So, Take a stand uh, on that rope. Major Reisman tells a couple of the other guys to hold the bottom of the rope and he gets out a shotgun and he shoots the rope so that Jimenez basically has no choice but he's got to finish That's a That's a, a, a sort of a certain specific way to uh, show leadership. Yeah. Actually, actually, it was a machine gun. Oh, was it a machine gun? Okay, oh, yeah, because yeah. he, he fired off about 20, 20 rounds. That's right, that's right. <laughs> hey, what... Trini Lopez went up that rope like a rocket. And the other thing, I, the other part of that section of the movie I liked was the fight with Posey, who was uh, the character played by uh, Clint Walker. Oh, when he'd been pushed so far? Yeah. yeah, he's like a, he's giant, but he's like a teddy bear at the same, he's like a gentle giant. And uh, Major Reisman's talking about, well, wh how, wh how'd you end up in prison? Tell me, Posey, what did they lock you up for? I mean, what did you do? Already told you that, sir. Well, tell me again. I'm sure that your friends over here would like to know, too. What'd you do, Posey? Yeah, fill him in. This fellow wouldn't stop pushing me, and I don't like to be pushed, so I hit him. Killed a man with your bare hands because he shoved you? <laughs> I only hit him once. <laughs> only hit him once. And drove his jawbone right through his brain because he pushed him. I didn't mean to kill him. You didn't mean to kill him, but you did kill him, didn't you? Now, what would you do if you meant to kill somebody? You think you could do it? Huh? And he's, I, he says, I killed a guy. And he says, I only hit him once. <laughs> <laughs> I broke it. I put his jaw in his brain. Yeah. And then when Reisman gets him really agitated, you think, oh, no, he's going to get... The, the Posey character is going to kill Reisman, and and Franco's over there cheering him on, and they're all cheering him on, but Franco's like, yeah, get him, get him. And bang, Reisman takes care of him right away. And and he says, well, imagine, imagine what you can do if you could control your anger. You know, it's like he's showing him a lesson about being able to fight and being able to control yourself and not just, you know, raging and being out of control. So that was kind of cool. And then the last part of that that I really liked was when they all decided not to shave. <laughs> uh, or bathe. Or bathe. Yeah, because, uh, again, Franco was complaining about the cold water, so that was the end of their hygiene. 
And for quite a while. And that's Ooh. where they, they get the name the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> so you want to stink, huh? And maybe it's too? Well, that's okay with me because I don't have to smell you. All right, Sergeant, there will be no further issue of shaving equipment or the use of soap. And there will be no more hot meals. Just K-Ration. Courtesy of Mr. Franco. They were so gross. But they're starting to uh, gradually come together because Franco borrows some uh, or steals some wire cutters and Jim Brown and Charles Bronson go out and keep him from escaping because they knew that that would get them all back in prison. So you can kind of see them coalescing around each other. And that was sort of taking place about halfway through the second part of the training. And then they get that, uh, that uh, what do they call it, uh, well, the war games. Well, no, first they go to the parachute training. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. This is where we meet the colonel. Robert Ryan, the formal, officious colonel. Yeah, Colonel Robert Everett Ryan, Dasher Col- Breed, Colonel Breed. Yeah. Yes, Robert this Ryan is-, is a wonderful actor, I tell you. But this guy was, this guy was beyond uptight. He was, and he, and this was this was interesting because pretty much throughout the movie up to this point, except for Major Reisman, all of the leadership of the army are kind of put are kind of shown as being inept and kind of cruel and out of touch with the the, the guys on the ground, and this is sort of the epitome of that character, you know. Yeah, there was another general that Robert Weber played. General Denton was that way. I thought that uh, Ernest Borgnine's character as the uh, the major, the uh, three-star general Sam Warden was more real, more believable, and he liked it when Colonel Everett Dasher Breed got captured during yeah, the war did. games. He, he, did. he thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Ernest Borgnine's character was was not not portrayed as being totally out of touch but everybody else kind of was the other part which was when they after the parachute training they go back to the camp and they have that party where they bring in all those uh, all those hookers (laughs) and they put maggot up in the guardhouse so that he can't get in any trouble and he just goes ballistic yelling and screaming at him i don't believe that mr maggot would care to indulge uh, so i suggest that you save some of that whiskey for him when he gets off of duty good night gentlemen Good night, Colonel. You crazy? Come on, let's get out of here. We might inhibit them. You want a bet? Major! Yes, you, Major Reisman. I saw those filthy strumpets. You're turning this place into a bottomless pit of vice. Comes Judgment Day. And Judgment Day is coming. Those men, Major, they'll suffer eternal damnation because of you, Major. Keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. You're on guard duty, maggot. Well, they had a good party, though. That was quite a collection of women that they brought into the camp. and uh... Wasn't it? Wasn't it, though? And as I recall, those guys had still not showered or cleaned up either, so... God, it must have stunk so bad in there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is uh, another example of a movie where the women are basically just treated as objects 
And all the women that had any kind of major role in the movie were were basically like working girls. And yes, even, that's even right. the German lady at the end of the movie in the chateau was also that way. I, I thought about was that done on purpose? And I'm thinking about, you know, Nunley Johnson writing this. And I'm thinking that it's kind of a comment. I, I almost think that it's a comment on the way women are treated in film. You know, like th there's no women in any kind of a major role except as these working girls. And I have to think that was done on purpose because there's this whole undertone of the movie about sort of, there's sort of an almost anti-war undertone to the movie. Yeah. I think it's also like a social commentary on, on women and on authority figures and on kind of this idea of the rebel and how they can be redeemed. So I, it didn't bother me as much because I thought that it was there for a purpose. It wasn't just done unintentionally like in some other films. Well, and it, it came out during the height of the Vietnamese War, Vietnam War, in 67. You know, the, backdro the backdrop was demonstrations were starting, you know, civil disobedience. And there's more uh, activism around women's rights. Yeah, civil rights. Because there was the same kind of undercurrent with James Brown character and how he'd been treated. Yeah, the Jim Brown character, yeah. The major gets dressed down by the by the general, the other general, not uh, General Warden, but the uh, General Denton, and he stands up for himself. I take it you don't deny your responsibility for the fact that on the night of April 14, 15, a military establishment of the United States Army was the scene of a drunken party at which no less than seven female civilians took an active part. Oh, yes, sir, they took an active part, all right. Excuse me, gentlemen. Are you in a position to offer even the remotest mitigating circumstances? Yes, sir. Oh, Sergeant, more ice. Yes, sir. Well? You offered those men a chance to get off the hook, and they worked damn hard at it. Now they're just shaping up, you're going to say, sorry, fellas, the deal's off, huh? Why? Well, you've only yourself to blame for that. You're the one responsible for those women being in camp. All right, so I broke an army regulation. What are you going to do, kill five men and send the rest to prison for life? Because if you did that... You'd have to lock up half the United States Army officers included. Anyway, you just said it yourself. It was my fault, not theirs. And it's not going to affect their ability as soldiers. Yes, well, we've heard about their ability as soldiers from Colonel Breed. That's his opinion. Look, my men have crammed six months of intensive training into as many weeks. And as of this moment, I stack them up against any men in the Army. I love that scene because he's not going to back down. And he's basically telling them, you, guys, you gave me these 12 guys, you know? I mean... I'm doing the best I can, and not only that, I think they can stand up to anything you could throw at them. I think they're better than any any of the units that you have already active in the field. And this is where this is where uh, George Kennedy's character suggests, kind of indirectly, that maybe they should be part of the war games. Yeah, Kennedy was there to kind of help Major Reisman as much as possible. And that's the setup for the war games. Yeah, they... so then we get into the war games, and this was my favorite part of the movie. The war games were my was was my favorite part. I loved it when they when they pushed George Kennedy off the back of that truck. <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing, and boom, off he goes. Enough for you, fella. Well, they did it in a way that made it seem like it was an accident too, because uh, yeah, he he came running up at the end, and he was like laughing and cheering them on when they captured the colonel's headquarters. 
Well, anybody with the name of Colonel Everett Dasher Breed is due for a downfall, don't you think? I mean... Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, did you want to talk about how they kept switching sides? Well, they, they in order to infiltrate the uh, different sides, they would just switch from the Blue Army to the Red Army. They had different bands. And and somebody was a monitor, and they said, well, you can't do that. And they said, well, and that's when I think they said to him, hey, this is the real thing. And that was their that was their plan. Sorry, gentlemen, but this is the end of the line for you. But we got a bad accident down here, sir. That's <laughs> too bad because you just became prisoners of war. They're the enemy, sir. All right, come on, let's go. Let's go, let's go. They can't do that. Come on. You're wearing red force insignia. <laughs> That's right. We're traitors. Watch my finger. Now look here, I'm a doctor, Major. And I'm a major, Captain. Well, yes, sir, I can see that, but we just had a radio message. There's a man badly hurt down there. Hurry it up, hurry now, up. Here's our permission to cross all lines and roadblocks. Very cute idea, Captain, but it won't work. Get out. But it's not a gag, sir. There's a real casualty there. All set back here, Jefferson. Sir, will you explain the rules to him? The man may be dying. Well, I'm just an observer, Captain, not an umpire. I can't interfere or make any rulings. <laughs> the guys were like, yeah, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> this is war. <laughs> this is war. And then they they managed to throw or push Kennedy off the truck. So then we go to part three, which is yeah, the mission. This is where we... Uh, Right after the war games, they're celebrating and they're having dinner. And uh, it's not just a dinner, though, because they've been practicing. And that now they have their mission, which is to, to to take this chateau where I think like a hundred or there's a lot of like higher ups within the Nazi military machine are, are going to be there for this dinner where they're kind of planning and, and celebrating the fact that they're, you know, winning the war, they think. Um, and this is right before D-Day. Uh, I kind of got the impression this was really close to D-Day. Yeah, I think so. And I, I what I liked about this uh, part of the uh, movie is the way Reisman had them go through every step. There were like 18 steps that they had to memorize. On uh, Wikipedia, they have them listed. Down to the roadblock, the guards are through, the majors, are, and each one is Rhine. So that he, he got it drilled into them that they wouldn't forget Sergeant Bond? Oh, Look, I know we've been over this a thousand times, but there's a lot of things that can go wrong. We've got to be prepared to improvise. So let's see what happens if everything goes right. You ready? All right. One. Down to the robots we've just begun. Two. The guards are through. Three. The Major's men are on a spree. Four. Major Wallace Law go through the door. Five. Donald Duck? 
Donald ducks down at the crossroads with a machine gun. You'd better not be asleep or we'll all be in trouble, huh? So off they go uh, on their mission. Right away, somebody dies during the nighttime parachute. And I can't even remember who it was that didn't make it, but he got hung up in an apple tree and broke his neck. Well, I think, uh, first of all, just to backtrack for a minute, the attack on the chateau was, uh, was to take place on the night of June 5th. Right before June. Oh, 6th, so it was D-Day. right before. It was right before, and then they—I believe the person that was killed in the parachute jump was Trini Lopez's character, because Trini Lopez had a previous contractual commitment for some other <laughs> event, and he couldn't finish the so movie. So they had to write so about. I, my reading on that was they—they they had to—they had to have him have an accident so that he oh, could take funny. off for okay. whatever he was doing, music-wise. So that's—I uh, think that's how that goes. And then they get this equipment, and, and that you were talking earlier about this truck that they had, this German truck. It's the biggest truck I've ever seen in the military. They, that truck was already there at the chateau because uh, they kind of commandeer it near the end. Right. But they do bring in like some pretty heavy-duty machine guns and and a whole boatload of grenades. Like <laughs> I don't even know, like thirty or forty or more grenades and explosives to blow up that chateau. Yeah, they they uh, commandeered that big truck, and I'm thinking, in all of the things I've read about World War II, I've never seen it a photo huge. of a truck that it, big. It obviously, I'm was sure a real thing. It. it was like a combination truck and tank. So then the action at the chateau is interesting. But did you did you did you think it was what What did you think about the very first scene that we get of them coming up to the chateau, and there's those two German guards, and they're just kind of kicking back at the guard station with the fire, kind of keeping them warm. And they're talking about how he's going to go on leave and... Noch zwei Wochen from diesem Crash und ich bin zu Hause. Den Sieg? Nein. Das dort. Ich habe halbe Lauf. And I thought they tried to humanize the kind of ordinary German soldier a little bit there, which I I wondered what you thought about that. I think that's in keeping with the uh, the time in which the movie was made. The ordinary soldier on the ground does all the dirty work, and all the higher command, in this case the Germans, are off partying. All the generals are having a big party, and these guys are stuck out there at the fire. I think it's just another piece of that 1960s uh, message about the war. Pretty much everything that happens from that point to the point where the where all the party goers and the generals and the, their wives and girlfriends and everything get locked in the in the cellar felt to me like a fate to complete uh except for uh maggot's character that was totally unexpected for me that was a surprise what he did yeah he finally lost it totally totally lost it i never could figure out how he ever made it onto this group into this group i mean he just he i think he was just the one oddball in the whole the whole movie. If you remember back to when they were at the camp that they had built and the psychologist or psychiatrist had come in to evaluate each of them and he talked to Maggot and he... There are 11 evil men out there and, and they, they must be punished for their wickedness and this Major Reisman, he just snatched them up from the brink of the pit and he cheated the master of his vengeance. And you think that's what God wants? To punish these men? Oh, he will, Captain. He will. 
and Major Reisman too. Basically came up to Major Reisman after that and said, So what does that give you? Doesn't give me anything. But along with these other results, it gives you just about the most twisted antisocial bunch of psychopathic deformities I have ever run into. And the worst, the most dangerous of the bunch is maggot. You've got one religious maniac, one malignant dwarf, two near idiots, and the rest I don't even want to think about. Well, I can't think of a better way to fight a war. The, uh, the uh, psychiatrist that did that was uh, Ralph Meeker, another really well another really successful uh, actor in a lot of roles in the 40s and 50s man like in the 60s so okay they're, yeah, they're the at chateau. the chateau and and like yeah i was kind of i wasn't i wouldn't say that i was bored at this part but i i would say that i i lost a little bit of interest because it felt a little bit too easy for them like i mean they they they're they're there's like two guards at the guard station and there's some guards kind of hanging out in this little guard post by the chateau but nobody really is suspicious that captain uh that major riceman never says anything you know he's he's just totally silent and when they're going to go to sign in to the party Charles Bronson was. Yeah, the... he he spilled ink all over the the logbook so that it would kind of look like, well, we can't sign in now. We you get this cleaned up and we'll come back, kind of thing. But I mean, it was exciting and I, it was fun to watch because they they had a lot of different kind of things going on. But up, up until the part where Maggot went nutso, I was I was a little bit kind of like anxious for it to move on, you know. Move on, man. Well, for me, it's there's three parts to the movie. The first part where he f- recruits the people, and that's exciting because there are such a a weird group of people that have so many problems. And then the second part is where he builds them into a team. Those were the two fun parts of the movie for me. And the last act at the Chateau is kind of like anticlimactic. The brutality of the way that they end up killing all the people at the Chateau was really something wow i mean all those all they everybody runs no down kidding, to the man. basement yeah. because they're under attack and they get locked down there and then they pour our 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 crew here our unit our dirty dozen pour gasoline down the air vents and then drop a whole bag of grenades down the air vents to act as a bomb and then Jim Brown's character, Robert Jefferson, is is kind of left behind to ignite this thing off, and he's he's charged with dropping a grenade down each of the four air vents. Major Reisman says, Jefferson, when I give you the signal, set him off one, two, three, four, and get the hell out of there. We'll wait for you at the bridge. Right? Right. And, uh, and he does, but he ends up getting shot as he's trying to run to the big truck. There's quite a few people on IMDb message boards that don't like that ending because of the brutality of of how how they did that. I never felt that way when I watched it because World War Two, you know, was just twenty years back or twenty two years back, and uh, again in the context of nineteen sixty seven and what the Germans had done in Europe, you know, to Jews and. Uh, any other group that they didn't like it just didn't bother me well here here's my thought on it i i think that 
that that that brutal things happen in war, and their mission their mission was to basically get rid of all these people, and they did that, and that's how they it didn't go to plan. I don't think that they necessarily plan to pour gasoline down there and blow them up that way but that's the way that they had to do it and uh i i think to to say that it's too brutal or that it's too graphic is kind of missing the point of the of the movie war is war is in a way like that i i remember the first iraq war when uh you could watch those bombs go right down onto the target from a video camera in the bomb Oh, yeah, they had the camera on the front of the smart bomb. It's, it's yeah. the same kind of thing, and people would watch that. They'd become fixated on it. And let's not forget that the only people that made it out of this thing alive were Lee Marvin's character, Major Reisman, and Charles Bronson's character, Joseph Vladislav. Richard and Jekyll, so, the sergeant, made it. And, Ray, and That's right, Richard Jekyll, and he he made it out, Sergeant uh, Bowron. So it's not like all of these guys in the Dirty Dozen got a good deal out of it they were they were either going to die from hanging or in prison or they kind of went out as heroes attacking the chateau and and the kind of the ending of the movie talks about how all their records were wiped clean and they were uh reinstated as as at the rank that they were before they got in trouble and so in that sense you know their their memory would be living on as sort of a hero and not as a criminal. I just remember my takeaway from the night I went to see this, because I remember going to it in Boulder, was it was just a fun two and a half hours. Non-stop action, crazy behavior, weird characters. I mean, it was it was just really fun. But with like 40 years of hindsight, yeah. or is it, is it 50 years now, um, you can you can see that not only is it a fun action movie where there's a lot of interesting things happening, uh, but it's also a, a movie about World War II made in the late 60s. And so there's a lot of the social commentary that was happening in the late 60s that shows up in, in the movie. And that, to me, is the really interesting part of it the is. movie. And at the time, I didn't really think about that. But the other thing is Lee Marvin was a huge star at this at this time he he was making successful movie after successful movie just you know bang 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 no pun intended on the bang bang there's another movie that he made with Burt Lancaster that we may want to review sometime called The Professionals from about 1966 another action movie with Jack Palance and Robert Ryan so anyway well I, my rating on this I gave it an 8 out of 10 and I, 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 I benchmarked my, my ratings against, you know, Double Indemnity and Grapes of Wrath. It's, it's just sort of a step below that in my mind. But still an outstanding and really fun movie. Can I, can I give it a seven and a half? <laughs> give it whatever you want. Because <laughs> I, I think it's between, a, it's a between an average movie and a, and a really great classic masterpiece that we would give a ten to. And... I don't feel quite like an eight, and I feel like seven's not quite there. So, but if I had to pick one, I would say seven. It's kind of between the two for me. I would think this would be the kind of movie that the grandkids, you know, the teenage grandkids, or when they get a little bit older, could watch, and they could say, "Okay, this is like a movie that we would see today." Kind of. Did you ever see the movie The Expendables? Yes. Or any of the yes. sequels? Oh yes. 
to me, the Expendables is sort of like a uh, spiritual successor to The Dirty Dozen because it's like bringing together all these people to go on a mission, and there's and they're sort of like an unlikely bunch of heroes. They're, well, obviously, it's it's also funny because they're all action stars from the eighties and early. Many 90s. of them are many of but, them are uh, now getting social security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that doesn't slow them down. But to me, I mean, the, this that shows the difference between a movie made in nineteen sixty seven and a movie made in modern time, which is there's a heck of a lot more explosions and guns and special oh, effects today than there would have been back sure. then. Yeah. But I, I still enjoyed this. Um, so that's our review of the Dirty Dozen. And coming up, we've got our plan for April in place. Uh, next week, we're going to review the unsinkable Molly Brown. And then we're going to jump into a series of four science fiction movies from the late 60s and, and into the 70s. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Westworld the Andromeda Strain, and Logan's Run. And so we're going to kind of just see how movie making kind of evolves in the 70s, and I think the the science fiction genre is a, is a good way to, to look at that. I agree. And they're all good movies and fun to watch. So that's it for this week, and uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson wishing you happy and good movie watching. Killing generals could get to be a habit with me. Franco, BR. Vladek, M. Jefferson, RT. Pinkley, BL. Gilpin, S. Posey, S. Sawyer, SK. Lever, R. Bravos, T.R. Jimenez, J.P. Maggot, A.J. They lost their lives in the line of duty. So the story goes, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, Art Modell, said to, uh, Jim Brown went to him and said, I want to <clears throat> be an actor, but I also want to play football. He's the best running back that was ever in football, probably even today. And Art Modell said, nope, if you're going to be an actor, you can't play football. You can't do both. So Brown said, okay, Mr. Modell, so long. And he left after nine years. And Art Modell just recently, I think before he died, I think he's dead now, he said that was the dumbest thing he ever did to to make it so that Jim Brown had to make that decision. Because he was the best running back ever. <laughs>